Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby at Mindsight.com. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisby, and in today's show, the first gold pour at Capital Gold is imminent. Bob Hoy gives us his take on where we are in the grand scheme of things, and Michael Hampton talks bonds, China, and gold. Remember our disclaimer that this program is for information and entertainment purposes only. Nothing that you hear constitutes advice to buy or sell anything. A reminder also that companies who appear on this show do pay a fee to appear on the show. Not a lot, but without that fee, there wouldn't be a show. And a reminder that if you go to the sister site, commoditywatch.podbean.com, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes. That's commoditywatch.podbean.com. Now, let's crack on with the show. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby at mindsight.com. I'm sitting with Bob Hoy in the Rubens Hotel overlooking Buckingham Palace. Bob is the Chief Investment Strategist with Institutional Advisors. Bob, welcome to the show. Um, why don't we start by talking about, well, let's talk generally. Where, where are we in the world markets at the moment? Well, good to be here. I always love London. And uh, we're actually, I think, arriving here for a bit of a financial show tomorrow is quite timely because uh, we've been looking for what we called tongue-in-cheek against Greenspan's comment of late uh, 1996 where he described then that upward action in the stock market as irrational exuberance. So we twisted that around and uh, beginning in March and said that this market could go out with a terrific zoom up. So, But then in that it's happening at a seasonal time when markets may top, we've called it rational exuberance. And uh, it's rational and uh, it's uh, it's exuberant. It's really getting in there. So that's a bit of a play on words there. Mm-hmm. And so this is a step-by-step process where you have to have the dynamics of the marketplace register that all of the bulls are in. So one might say, well, okay, how do you tell that dispassionately? And uh, we have uh, a model that my uh, charting colleague, Ross Clark, created Oh, he's been working on this thing for about 15 years, and, and then in the year 2000, it kind of came together and put about six different technical parameters together, and it is designed to do two things. One is to get the end of a bear market when you have what we call downside capitulation selling. You know, they're kind of selling like, get me out of any. Yeah. Well, that shows up in a certain uh, parameters within this these uh, set of indicators. And we got that. They've started coming in in September of 2002, which then turned out to be the bottom. And we were getting those uh, downside capitulations registered in all kinds of price series, stock indexes, etc. So then that would indicate you had a cyclical bull market ahead. So then... In late February, we started getting these upside 
exhaustion readings, which is the opposite end. And uh, oh, a number of global stock exchanges, uh, Europe, um, Italy, uh, Spain, Germany, then the IFI uh, with the Australian and, and Asian ones. But the one that was missing was the um, Shanghai market. Mm. It was working on its way, uh, what we would call methodical bull market, and not at all at that hyper-excited stage. So this then on the Shanghai Exchange, that came in three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. The action became so irresistible. So you had, you know, anecdotal stories with it, like opening, uh, you know, 900,000 new accounts a week, and that gives one the scary thought that you would have a proportionate number of new stockbrokers to look after all those new accounts, and that's a scary proposition. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so at any rate, that came in and registered, and, and I don't have a chart with me on it now, but you can just imagine this stock market going straight up, and this program is just designed, and all it does is put splotches on, mm -hmm. on the graph when all those six parameters are registering this upside exhaustion, and we got that. So then, what, what are those six technical parameters? Oh, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> you tell us, tell us two of them, and just, just chop off my arm. <laughs> um, no, I. There, it's a nice piece of work that Ross has done, and I know that some of them he worked on for fifteen years, of just fine-tuning these things, and and you can you can apply that to. Um, base metals or to a bond, to a currency, anything mm. that's making a huge dramatic move. And if it's going to end, it, it will end in that kind of a movement and it will register on this chart. So we were, shall we say, patient on the Chinese market, and that's using the Shanghai index, waiting for it to culminate, and it has culminated. So. That condition can last for a few weeks, more than a few weeks, but you know what it is. It's sort of an indelible condition mm -hmm. that policymakers would like to have steady growth in, say, uh, the economy. They would like to have steady growth in a stock market. And then what happens when something goes bang on the way up and you get five or six weeks of very energetic movement, mm -hmm. that then becomes an indelible event where hey, this has happened. And it would be best avoided, but and uh, you you can then just wait. You know, once it once you get up there, mm -hmm. how do you get down? That's it, kind of what's happened with our housing yeah, market. Yeah, how do you get down? And it's, ne it's never easy. It was like in in '89 with the Tokyo market, where Paul, and at that time the uh, policymakers, authority Mitty, I think they were called were considered to be the wisest set of policymakers that had ever happened. I mean, because they were in a magic bubble. But there were some within the bank of policy, or the policymakers over there, that became apprehensive of the boom and said, oh, well, we've got to deflate it a little, bring it down a bit. We'll just kind of let a bit of air out of the bubble. And then, of course, the first crack comes in. And it's usually pretty nasty, upsets to be people who are highly leveraged. And I remember with the Tokyo bubble, which peaked right at the end of 89, and then certainly maybe by the second or third week of January, all of a sudden people were 
uh, having second thoughts about this. Oh, maybe this isn't going to... So one policymaker even suggested the idea of lowering uh, margin requirements. And the problem is a highly speculative market with too many margin requirements, margin tra traders. So then they... Uh, try so policymakers don't do things right most of the time. So anyways, through the last few months, there has been some nervous policymakers in China saying it's too much, it's too hot a market, it's too speculative. And then you've had, uh, what was it, about a 15.5% drop in uh, three trading days out of Shanghai. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden they say, oh, oh, so you don't know whether the back of it is broken, but you, you have established one major condition, a hugely overbought market, hugely leveraged, with a bunch of new players, that's players being new accounts with new stockbrokers, and that's always a dangerous recipe. Could you argue that with the um, rise in global stock markets that we've seen, and in some cases this uh, over-exuberant rise, but nevertheless with a similarly over-exuberant rise in money supply growth, that maybe they don't need to come down? Yeah, this is in the market now, that it is the liquidity, and they're talking about the amazing liquidity. This is the orthodox side of the street talking about amazing liquidity, driving prices up. But I think if one goes through history, the exercise is, is that rising prices permits leverage and margin and all sorts of abuses like that, then that expansion of board money against the rising asset price is what gives the illusion of liquidity but it's all a lot of it is borrowed money and so here's a cause and effect thing that prices are being driven up by liquidity I'd suggest that it's rising prices are giving the illusion of liquidity and once the prices stop going up then you find a lot of margin players offside, and in the final number of it all, your uh, margin clerk, at a, or should we say Clark, at, <laughs> at a major brokerage house, he, he has a different job description than the job description of your basic central banker. Central banker's job is to get to stimulate credit at all times because they don't have a forecasting model, so they keep pushing all the time. And then when the prices start going down, then your margin clerk is there. He's there to sell person out if he can't come up with extra margin. And that's as simple as it is. So this is what we're looking at now. It's probably this could probably be the case in the in the Shanghai market. So the downside risk in Shanghai at least and possibly elsewhere, and we'll talk about that, is that we see on the upside, we've seen credit expansion, mm -hmm. excess liquidity. On the downside, we see a credit crunch. Mm -hmm. And with the credit crunch comes a sudden draining of liquidity. Yeah. And so we see a dramatic downside, possibly more dramatic than the upside. It depends, uh, the, the, the apparent liquidity can disappear very quickly. It can change just on an instant. For example, in the 1929 stock boom in New York, one of the common comments to support the bulls through the final summer was take a look at the 
uh, and it was reported then within the banking system, broker loans. And, of course, broker loans were a added to because they, in turn, were margining, had margin accounts. And then uh, early September 29, you then had a whole bunch of new issues done during the summer that had to be paid, so our broker loans zoomed. And then there was nothing really to drive the market further up. So that was the equipment. Then they were sensible enough to just call it um, broker loans mm -hmm. rather than liquidity. Whereas now they don't have that common sense. They're, they're, they're considering borrowed money as liquidity. So a uh, market is a market, and uh, I think that will be examined. But if even you go to the theory side, the uh, Austrian school, headed up by von Mises and then carried on later on by Hayek, they were very careful to point out that that um, credit expansion doesn't necessarily force business activity or stock market activity. And you, you can drop back into the study of formal logic, and there is what they call a primitive syllogism, which is because two things occur at the same time, therefore they must be causally linked. Yeah. And one of them is the Fed or the bank handling issuing credit, and that's going to drive the economy. Now, throughout all of history, let's just take 400 years of history, the um, business boom comes along, and with that you had a credit boom. But one doesn't cause the other. They are associated events. And the classic primitive syllogism is where the rooster crows in the morning, causing the sun to rise. That's a yeah. primitive syllogism. And so is the idea that liquidity is driving prices up. Prices are creating the liquidity. Every time the uh, government raises interest rates, my trousers are down. <laughs> Therefore, I'm pulling my trousers down. Well, the, you, 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 just, you just brought up a, another one here, and that is you've got uh, uh, legions of people in the business and in academics that follow every utterance of the Fed or the Bank of England on interest rate policy. And let's call the part that they look after administered rates. Let's call the other part, which is the real, that's uh, market rates of interest. Now... Since about 1850, the senior central bank, which was then Bank of England, prior to that, they were limited by usury considerations, so they couldn't raise their rates too much above. They, they could maybe they could raise go from five percent to five and a half percent. So there's What's nothing. What's a usury consideration? Usury was that uh, the usury laws were that you couldn't uh, charge above a certain rate of interest because it was terrible. Oh, okay. And it was almost a theological consideration about how high interest rates should be. I see. So gradually they got out of that. So then you've had the big bubbles of 1873 and 1929 and, uh, and since. And the evidence is that at the top of a great boom, market rates of interest, like in the U.S. now, three-month treasury bills, they start to go down. Policymakers are still trying to sound sensible, so they're talking about the boom and, gee, should we cut, shouldn't we cut, all this thing. Oh, hell, they leave. They, they're three to four months behind. The same thing as this, the uh, 2000. They were still talking about tight, and, and the street was worrying about tight money in the summer of 2000. And at that time, we wrote, 
don't get worried about rising short rates of interest because interest rates always go up with a boom and down with the contraction that follows. So then you have here now, you, maybe, maybe next month, well, let's back up a bit. The t Treasury bill rate in the U.S. had a high yield of 5.18% um, at the end of February, and it's been as low as 4.74% lately, and that's quite a drop. And uh, yet the policy levels, they're all debating about whether one should uh, do another rate hike. So this will be just like uh, in uh, 2000 where the uh, market rates started to drop and then a while later the Fed started to drop rates and the bulls took that as, here we go, this is it. And the first they, were t they seriously started talking about a Fed cut in December of 2000 and then the f by the time the first came, cuts came in January 01, the NASDAQ had already given up $3 trillion in market cap and uh, then, of course, you had uh, uh, op-ed writers and editorial writers then blamed Greenspan and the Fed for causing that drop in market cap by raising the rate. And then after a while they shot, then later on, of course, they, that was the famous 17 uh, cuts in the Fed funds rate, and it went from 6% to approximately 1%. And that was considered some kind of an emergency uh, move by policymakers to uh, prevent that contraction from getting any worse. So then, this is then becomes rather interesting because the policymakers really live in, in a different world, and um, they lag the market. And a classic thing here, I think, is where there could be some sort of sunshine in, in, uh, in UK and US stock markets as it looks like the Fed's going to cut the administered rates side. So then that then put in a, maybe a week of plus into the stock markets. But the irony is is that and it's, it's, it should be described as a law in economics textbooks that short-dated market rates of interest go up during a boom and they go down during a bust. It's as simple as that. And yet you get this cause and effect coming in. Oh, they're going to cut rates so we can go long a highly dynamic market that could be the top of a bull market because they get this notion that the Fed can range all of this stuff. So we're, actually there's a bit of Goldilocks coming back into, the, into this scenario. So where are we now? If, if, if we've seen some excess, shall we say, in Shanghai, have we seen similar excess uh, in the U.S. and the U.K. markets? In the, in the base metals stock side, the merger mania, takeover mania, uh, also one of the tops of the business cycle on the metal side is you always have workers going out on strike. So that's happening. And... Uh, you don't have to have the senior markets at the same horrendous valuation as they were in 2000. That was a high-tech bubble when valuations didn't matter. And what we have here now is on the metal side, the main um, bulls have been Jimmy Rogers and Donald Cox, and they've got this idea that 
because commodity prices went down for 18 years after 1980, therefore they should go up for 18 years. And I found that if you go back, there's a very good price history built on British uh, price history in 700 years of consumable prices. It goes back to about 1290. And the pattern there is that if you're at, at you have a long contraction and sort of like a depression bottom, then you will have a 20 to 25 year bull market in commodity prices and that will end in huge asset inflations, whether it's houses or commodities, and then later on, uh, in, 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 in beginning around 1700, they added on the uh, stock market as an item to be speculated in. So the point is that the, it's the speculation that creates the break, and it has nothing to do with policymakers. And uh, this is, you know, as I say, we've looked at this, and why people can come along and look at one man's theories, like Keynes, that if the central bank at a particularly perfectly timed moment know exactly when to cut the discount rate by a quarter or half a point, and that's going to keep the party going. And then it seems that nobody looks at the history of interest rates and, and uh, speculative markets. And it is. Interest rates up, good. Interest rates down, bad. The, uh, you got a whole team of, of economists in Wall Street and everywhere all discussing and second-guessing what the Fed or the Bank of England is going to do. And at the same time, Mr. Market is doing it already. Mm -hmm. And on that supposed uh, emergency uh, cut of 17 discount or 17 cuts in the Fed funds target rate and uh, taking it from 6 to 1%, the only time in financial history that you get that kind of a decline in interest rates is following a bubble. And that's what I was working on a while ago, and then I got off thread on it. But in 1873, Bubble Bank of England was, was the senior central bank then. The, uh, they then used the term rediscount rate. It was at, at the end of the bubble, at the crisis, it got as high as 9%. And then within 12 to 18 months, it had fallen to 2% in a bear market. Then the next big example was 1929. And then let's say that the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve were equivalent in stature. And we'll just use Federal Reserve numbers and uh, U.S. numbers. The uh, discount rate then went from 6% down to 1% in a bear market. So then this time around, you had the discount rate or the uh, Fed funds rate being driven down from uh, 6% in January of one down very rapidly to 1%. And that was when the stock market, whether you use the Dow Jones Index or, or the, uh, the NASDAQ, shedded you know, 4 to $5 trillion in market cap while the interest rates were going down. Then once the interest rates stabilized, started going up, that meant, hey, recovery is coming. So I think one should do a, 
a serious job of unlearning textbook economics and textbook stuff on central banking because it it's, lives in a strange world and from time to time barely relates to the real world of financial markets. Well, I'm relying on you to, re to write <laughs> that textbook. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, now, if you think the base metals are possibly topping out here, what about what would you say to the argument that we are living through a once-in-a-generation or a once-in-a-century uh, industrial revolution yeah. in China, and that, therefore demand is at unprecedented? Yeah. Oh, we've seen that, especially this last few weeks. But, but why will it not continue? Uh, I'll go back to when the United States was the equivalent in, out of, in the 1870s, 1880s. The United States was the new burgeoning market with rapid introduction of technology, particularly on the line of changing from, from production of iron to production of steel, railroads, uh, migration of people from rural to urban, and then also huge migrations in. So it's very similar. And that period in financial history, while well, followed that big bubble of 1873, and in England and Europe, it, the, the period was known as from 1873 to 1895 as the Great Depression. And uh, in, you've looked at U.S. figures. Their uh, stock markets took some big swings up and down. Ba ba metal prices took some swings up and down. And in England, the, there was an index of uh, farmland property values. It just went straight down for 20 years, 1873 to 1895. So that was at the time. Now, you can say about in in the United States at that time, the dynamism that was going on would make a big sideways with some big swings situation, whereas England, Europe suffered what was called the Great Depression. Mm. That was called the Great Depression until as late as about 1940 when suddenly some <laughs> economists woke up and said, oh, we have another Great Depression, and that that last one wasn't so much of a depression. So, uh, the it, it's, I think going back in time and looking at these things is quite useful because there are recurring patterns. And it's not just recurring patterns in the long history of interest rates or stock prices or commodity prices, but uh, the, uh, they're in, uh, in policymakers too. They do the same knee jerks. At uh, uh, say six, maybe eight eight weeks before uh, everything's gone crazy, they swan about saying this is very nice growth, the stock market is fairly priced, everything's wonderful, we've got prosperity, employment, da 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 da. -da. Then you get what I call the rational exuberance that ends a cyclical bull market. You can't really predict when that is going to happen, but you have to recognize what it is when it happens. So that then leaves, suddenly leaves the policymakers high and dry on now a, a suddenly hazarded condition of too much leverage being employed and how it works out. Now, there's a timing element on this that helps us out. Like We couldn't forecast when the Shanghai market would create this upside exhaustion. But we certainly record the moment when it comes in because of the impartiality of that modeling. Then 
what you want to look for next is that how how do they hold it together? You've got a bunch of high-priced stocks with late-comer new accounts in buying on margin, and in the past that has always resulted in a considerable sell-off and uh, much travail. And that then becomes another item: is that you have, as I said, you have the the um, pattern of behavior of policymakers. When the boom is looking good, they swan around taking uh, credit for it. Then all of a sudden there's a six or eight week window where it goes crazy and creates a, a dangerous condition like China has done now. So then you were then, we saw that in Tokyo in late 89 at their bubble, some policymakers who were a little concerned about the raging speculation that was going on uh, saying, well, we should try and cool this a bit. Well, then in the last couple of months, we've seen utterances like that from policymakers in, in, uh, in the Chinese market. And then you got the first crack, and that was back in, in January for the uh, Tokyo bubble of January 90, where all of a sudden policymakers are a little worried about, hey, how, how fast the stock market was coming off. And they said, oh, well, we'll lower margin requirements. We got problems with margin accounts? We'll lower margin requirements. Well, only the most naive person would ever suggest that. And it seems that sometimes you can have very naive people at the policy level. So this time around, you've had, you had a number of weeks of policymakers in, in, in China saying that it's crazy, and it was, and we should kind of deflate it, and they want to look like they're doing something. And they really maybe think they can deflate it a little bit, just like the policymakers in Tokyo did. And then you eventually come into, if it, if it goes the way of, of gravity, uh, you then maybe have a bear market. And in which case you get recriminations. I call it re regulatory recrimination. That, hey, the, the, we've got this awful thing happening, how can, can we prevent it from happening again. The whole of the Securities and Exchange Commission, which was formed in the early 1930s, was a result of policymakers in high dudgeon about a crash. And so the whole reason for the SEC was formed was to prevent the stock market from getting as over crazy as it did in 1929. And indeed, the promoters of the SEC at the time said this was wonderful. This will give us a cop on the corner of Wall and Broad Street, and nothing bad will ever happen again. <laughs> so that's what I say, Rash, rational exuberance, followed by rational topping, and followed by rational recrimination. So, so where are you putting your cash or your clients' always, cash Always, uh, Always a, a, a good question, Dominic. Um, Gold shares, senior gold shares can get hit in the early phases of a big stock market sell-off. Besides that, they're not usually big participants on the upside anyways. And here comes around the ironies is that in a boom, typically the real price of gold doesn't do very well. Um, and this then gets me into my um, questioning about the gold bugs or their formula for getting excited is to have commodities going up 
the U.S. dollar going down, and that then is, gives us the bull market for all bull markets for gold, you see. But they haven't done the work on what gold does over time relative to other things. So we do price of gold divided by our own commodity index. Mm -hmm. And we think that when you're in a business boom and a stock market related to that, and you're in a commodities boom, why hold gold? Because in a boom, those other items, base metals, will outperform gold. And yet you got the gold bugs going around the other way saying, hey, it's a hot commodity market, let's own gold. And they un it underperforms all the time. So our gold divided by commodity index it was at let's see, 255 in the middle of 03. Mm -hmm. Up until the middle of 03, the recovery in that stock market and the recovery in the economy was tentative. Begin in the middle of 03, it started to take off and mm -hmm. would be a boom. So then, that real price of gold, if you're in a boom, it's going to come down, and it came down to a month ago at 143. That's a, quite a drop. And the importance of that is that when the price of gold is underperforming commodities, and in that commodity index we've got crude oil, which is the proxy for energy costs, and a mine, whether it's mining copper or gold, has huge energy demands. Mm -hmm. So this eventually showed up in earnings for the major mining, gold mining companies in, in 04 and 05, 06, that, hey, that was when the dollar was going to go to zero and gold was going to go up, they weren't making any money out of that. And so I think more researchers these days are turning to trying to figure out what the real price is doing, and uh, we've been doing that for years. So the point on business cycle activity and whether to be in gold or not is if you're in a business boom, don't bother with gold. Get long copper or nickel or lead. But the question that led to this point now was, are we near the end of that? And uh, I suggest we are. The, you want to contrast the bull's point of view that, hey, we're only two years into a good base metal market and they usually last for 20 years or 18, as Jimmy Rogers says. But what if you take, then you take um, lead and nickel, copper, they, you, there's a way of looking at that. Um, you take the nominal price, which is the one everybody sees, divide it by, in this case, we use the producer price index to give you the real price. And uh, nickel is up 650% and we use cyclical bull markets. And in 100 years, the previous one, best one was like 300%, and then there was one that was 200% gain. So if you're in a percent gain on a five-year bull market of 650%, and the guys are going to say it's going to run for 18 years, and it's the biggest gain in 100 years, the market's trying to tell you that maybe maybe the world knows that it's going <laughs> to... <laughs> that, that, that the world is due an 18-year bull market. So then you have copper. What's copper was up 450%. The best, biggest gain was around 270%. And that's in 100 years. 
So you, by measure, you have some of the base metals at exceptional gains. The other one that is a conditioner is the yield curve, which is the difference in yield between um, long-end bonds mm -hmm. and uh, money market stuff, treasury bills. And typically on a business boom, that yield curve has short rates rising faster than long rates until the point where short rates get higher than long rates, and they call that an inverted yield curve. And the rule of thumb is that once you've had an inverted curve, typically you will be followed eventually by a recession. How it relates to uh, base metals is you have a price of copper, and we ran that against the yield curve for 100 years, and yeah, yield curve goes inverted. It's with a bull market for copper, and then you're always followed by a bear market. The, and that also we've run the stock market against the yield curve as well, and uh, that's the case. Actually, I've got that one, but we don't publish it because I've got it manually done back to 1858 and every time you have inversion you're, you're followed inevitably by a recession and a bear market. Now typically the inversion lasts for about 12 to 16 months or let's put this another way around. The final stage of a bull market will go against an inverted yield curve for some 12 to 16 months before the wheels start to fall off and June is month 16 on this. It turned, started to turn in February last year. So we've already seen some breaks in the stock market, that sort of thing. Perhaps this thing in China. So this is where it's, it's really interesting in the, in, in, in the big bubble market, which is China. Um, the pattern of really big stock bubbles, like going back to the South Sea bubble of 1720, the next big one was 1773, then the next big one, 1825, etc. that they have typically reached their best in May or June of the year. Then drifted during the summer months, churned around, and then suffered heavy liquidation in the fall months. So um, the, uh, the new thing on that is when the United States and the New York market became bigger, that it had a tendency on the 1873 bubble where Europe and London had its peak in May, June, that New York managed to do a kind of a nice little speculative jump into the first week in September and then and that was the same thing in, in 1929. So we're building quite a, a case here that you've got exuberance at the time when the greatest exuberance in history have concluded May, June. You also have uh, the pattern in the yield curve running 12 to 16 months of inversion against the speculation. And then the one that becomes telltale on the yield curve is when it starts to move away from inversion, which it has been doing in the last few weeks. So then that has our alert up even stronger that, hey, the the curve is beginning to change. And then there's one other part of the credit markets that can be a telltale. It's not as crisp as the, as the curve, and that's credit spreads, the difference between high-grade credits and low-grade credits. 
we are now, if you take a look at the junk bond spreads in the U.S., which is a form of benchmark, they're the narrowest they've been in history. And the junk bond market more or less began in the 1980s with Michael Milken, and it became a great party. Then it was a disaster, and it's back to a party again. And so what that reflects is people buying um, bonds of highly doubtful companies or sovereign nations that in uh, the winds start to blow in a different direction, this then will become highly liquid stuff. Yeah. Toxic waste is one term. <laughs> so now the, the better of the, of the lower grade stuff is called triple B. Uh, it's barely investment grade, and in the last month it was sort of like at 105, 105 basis points over treasuries. And it got out to 111, and then it came back to 105, but the posting I put in this week it was at 113. So it looks like they're working on a trend change in that sector, the widening. So this then is building a case whereby care and caution could come into what is essentially an enormous party. So That's a wonderful outline of what's going on. <laughs> Where do we put our cash? <laughs> well, Gold, you know, like. they, there's an old... Are you buying long-dated puts? Um, yeah, mm -hmm. in the bank stocks. Okay, I'll ask but you some quick questions then. U.S. housing, has it found a bottom or has it got further to go? It's got further to go down. Uh, remember that I pointed out that the... Following the 1873 bubble in England, the only real estate thing index I could find on that period of time was farmland values. We all know how important that is, and it yeah. went into a 20-year bear market. Okay. Hyperinflation or deflation? Uh, you want to look at... There's not so much of the old type of consumer price inflation. It's edging up to, say around 4%, but it's certainly not like the 14 and 15 and 18% on CPI inflation that you're getting in the 70s. But the inflation is actually, in England and certainly Canada and the United States, residential house prices, hugely inflated. You've got an enormous inflation in the China stock market. So what you want to do is, is look at what's being inflated, maybe even go back to the old definition of inflation, which is an inordinate expansion of credit. And uh, the more they say how much liquidity around there, the more they're saying that it's an inordinate expansion of credit because it's, it's not real money. It's all uh, leverage money. So that side, yeah, um, that doesn't look too good. And uh, the only thing that we're left to see here, one, one little, another little telltale and in, in, uh, a, a pending sell-off would be one day you get up and you look at the markets and gold is down a dollar and silver is down like about 22 cents. And silver itself then becomes a telltale because going into periods of market turmoil, uh, often uh, a sharp sell-off sell like that in silver relative to gold will be a leading item. So it's not doing it lately. As a matter of fact, going the other way, the gold-silver ratio has come in down to the low 49s. But on the chart, breaking above 51 would be a breakout on that, and that would be... That's another one. Like Gold-silver ratio itself is 
is like a credit spread. Okay. Gold, silver, or cash? Now, cash in a crash is the usual old saying, but if you take a look at, at the history of the financial markets, if we are in, let's say, early stages of a contraction, if you buy cash, treasury bills are the equivalent, and roll them over every three months, short rates fall during uh, a, a, a contraction. So every rollover, you're going to get less uh, return. So then you say, okay, well, maybe bonds, I mean, if, if the economy is going to slow, then maybe long rates are going to come down. But then you also often have a liquidity problem. So what you have here is that if long rates can go up, that means the price of long bonds is going down. So you don't want to own long bonds because you'll get hit in price. So there's a little sweet spot in the yield curve, called the fulcrum of the yield curve. It might be around the four to five year maturity where you can actually make money in that. So you're going to get a good return, make money in the four to five year maturities. The, the, going to cash in a crash is a nice phrase, but it doesn't work for you. You're better off to buy four to five year maturities. The other one, in all previous business contractions and bear markets, gold, the real price of gold has done well, and the gold mining stocks have done well as with that so are you partial to a junior miner yes I've if you want I will I'm now at a point where I finally will mention one you don't have stock. to mention name. no I will okay this one is a company that I've known for a long time I've known management for 30 years it's called Almaden A-L-M-A-D-E-N minerals the stock symbol is A-M-M on Toronto or A-A-U in New York and these guys have gone about it methodically in field work. And they're very successful in identifying new prospects, bringing them online, and then farming them out to people who spend the big bucks in, in paying for them. And they have a number of properties in Mexico. One of them, Caballa Blanca, has been dealt with the Lundin Mining Group uh, as going to be one of their gold vehicles. Drilling will begin on that probably in September, so there'll be a wait. They also have originated a, an area play in southern British Columbia called the Spencer's Bridge Gold Belt. And it's about a oh, 125 kilometer long section of staking by about 40 kilometers wide. It's big. And it's described as the, a new discovery of an epithermal gold district in B.C. The last one discovered like that was Eskay Creek in 1990. And the whole of the world played that one. So this uh, Spencer's Bridge gold play is just waiting for some good drill results this summer. But I'd call Almaden a blue chip junior gold. Okay, very nice. Okay, um, oil, energy, where do you see that going? Uh, Oil, we really run that one on a seasonal. We usually look for a high and You're late. not a believer in peak oil. No, no, that's imaginary stuff. And uh, <laughs> we traded. Like no, we traded on on seasonal and uh, go. Crude usually has a high in late March, and the high was 68 in early April. And this corrective period down into late January, early July. That has yet to come in, um, but let's put it this way, any weakness in the oil patch or the natural gas patch um, later in the month, 
any sort of, we would buy buyers because the natural gas can be a lot higher by the fall and you're going to get your usual seasonal crude rally out until early October. So um, on, the, on the base metal side, we were long the, in the fall for the usual seasonal rally out to late spring. We'd be lightening up. The action's been incredible. Uh, same with the oil and gas. We were long in the fall for a seasonal out to around here. Don't think the seasonal decline on the oil and gas is going to be all that much. So we just wouldn't be buying in here. Wait for a decline and then accumulate on weakness into July. The uh, uranium has been fantastic. My colleague has called those swings just very well. And then there was the big um, front cover story on uraniums uh, in April. And we use that as saying that looks very much like Suncor and the oil sands. The previous year where all of a sudden it became front page stories on Business Week and stuff like that, that set the end of the market. So then you went into quite a sideways trading range for all the Suncor and the, and the oil sand stocks. And the same thing's happening with the uraniums. The, the news became worldwide about nuclear energy for power and... Uh, that was the equivalent of the sun. So we're, we'd be traders of the uh, energy stocks and traders of the uranium patch. I, I notice in your thinking, you, you seem to be a student of history and you follow seasonal patterns and possibly identify cycles. You obviously use charting analysis with your, your magic man with his <laughs> parameters. <laughs> but you don't uh, think in, well, you don't seem to think in terms of. The, the kind of fundamental um, attitude that, say, Jim Rogers might have brought. Yeah, I can talk about that. I got, uh, when I started doing historical research in the 70s, I took the base metal side out, uh, metal side out, and I took it then to Placer, a huge mining gold company in Vancouver, and Cominco, and they paid me a retainer. So I've been dealing with big mining companies on research for, for a long time. And they, those big firms and any other big mining firm keep their own in-house analysts, mm. and they all talk about supply-demand, that this mine is going to go out of production this year, but then we've got these two starting up and this, that, and the other thing. And it is it's hard to make money out of doing fundamental supply-demand analysis because the price can move faster than your ability to analyze supply and demand. Mm -hmm. So we, we've used price. And for a while, and every and I, one of those mining companies, there was a you know a new team of analysts about every five or six years, and eventually they say, oh yeah, now let's see, now if we know the price is going to go up to then, let's make the fundamentals look good, and then if the price changes, uh, we'll change. Yeah. You see, so uh, no fundamentals. Some think they're important, but if you want to make money, you will analyze the price as best you can with whatever tools you've got and then the other thing you will relate it to changes in the credit markets like I've pointed out that hey we've got a big party in base metals fundamentals of that mergers and acquisitions the other fundamental strikes everything drives the price up shortages all over the place and then all of a sudden supply comes in it changes and so but you're better off to watch the price than okay. fundamentals one word answer are you shorting anything at the moment? No. Uh, no, no. We want that. You, you always want to, on when we get these upside exhaustions, you want to have 
the initial loss in momentum to start your serious selling. And uh, the initial loss in momentum in the Shanghai market was in about four days. So I think one would then watch for a rebound in Shanghai, then start playing the short side. We also have a, a, a what we call a bank trading guide. That's the one that I discovered quite some time ago. And when it works, it really works. And for example, we got the sell on that one in uh, July last year and came out with a sell on banks and financials and particularly the subprime stuff. And we actually called it a, an ideal widows and orphan, orphans short. And uh, the subprime stuff really did work out. But mm. the other, the more, you know, the the BKX bank index in the U.S. US sort of kind of stayed. It became a, a repository of, of funds. People just parked their money there and it didn't get trashed. But I think the next time we get a sell signal from our bank trading guide, it'll be the killer for the normal side of banking as well as the uh, the uh, riskier side, the subprime stuff. Okay. So, Finally, Bob, um, I'm going to give you ten grand. You've got uh, three years to turn that ten grand into, I don't know, fifty grand. How okay. Do do How do you do it? Oh. Current market I think conditions apply. right now. Wait for a couple of shorting opportunities. Maybe on the financial side will be a nice one. I would, the best call on a gold, future gold market, and here again it's backwards to conventional wisdom, is but you get your best gold bull markets following a big bull market when it goes bad. So then these junior mining stocks, if, if the management is alive, and making their filing reports, and there's a pulse there. These things, uh, the 25 centers are very depressed now, and that's what I've been doing that game for a long time. And you sit there and you accumulate them, accumulate them, and then all of a sudden, away they go, and then you start looking for the big party in them. And there's a, I think John Embry's one of the hot gold analysts, mining, or mining, or gold mining fund managers in Toronto, and, and he, his portfolio is pretty good exposure in the juniors. He knows all the game and and you get in that kind of a market. I know in 03 he had uh, his fund was up 120%. So junior golds although you're hung up with no liquidity until the party gets going but it is a beautiful call on gold. So you if I'm right in, in uh, reading between the lines you are suggesting that we're going to see a bear market in just about everything but gold, yeah. and gold could do very well. Mm -hmm. That's it. If and it, we get the bear market. If we get else. the bear market. And also, initially, the gold stocks might decline before they go up. Gold stocks could go down with the big, with the big markets in, in London and New York because it's, it becomes a source of liquidity. You sell out your good ones and, and to get yeah. defensive. But you, do you describe... Uh, by the way, Bob, you've been fantastic. We're sat here in a restaurant. We've had uh, people offering us cheese sandwich, <laughs> cups of tea, people borrowing chairs. Yeah. Somebody just chose to set off the blender in the background there. I think they're making a margarita for us. <laughs> well, um, but, uh, I mean, you talk about these bear markets coming in the stock markets almost yeah. like it's a given. It's inevitable. Uh, the trick is to catch the turn. And just, just to do a quick rehearsal on that, is that the biggest ones have blown out in May and June, and the valuations in the uh, London exchange and in the New York exchange don't matter.
because the action's in, in Japan. I'm oh, sorry, in, in China now. It's in China. And the action is in... How was the action in China when only the Chinese can trade those? It's the same as the... What you get is once the... So let's call the New York and London mature stock exchange. Okay. Shanghai is an adolescent, okay? In 1873 and 1929, um, London was the mature exchange. New York was the adolescent. And when New York went wrong, you read the period, you know, the, the economists through that period of time, that was the problem, the over, over speculation in New York. I see. So that's, the, that's why China is important. Now, you've got an interesting theory about China that you were outlining to me before uh, the interview. Uh, would you care to uh, tell us it? Yeah, well, it was. I was a great fan of, of Mrs. Thatcher's, and the communist political party government in Beijing was making noises that they wanted to run, politically run Hong Kong. And it was. One of the things that happened on Mrs. Thatcher's watch that I think was an error. At any rate, they surrendered it. And then everybody figured, oh, well, you know, they're going to turn Hong Kong into a bunch of Marxists. But they haven't done that yet. But instead what has happened is you've, the dynamism for this huge boom in southern China is from Hong Kong and Taiwan. That's the leadership. So, so far... Beijing has impo hasn't imposed Marxism on Hong Kong and on Taiwan. And then during a boom, any boom throughout history, it's not just that consumers get active and commodity traders get active and business and industry gets active, the financial markets get active, Politi poli the political side gets active and the left goes crazy. Then once the boom's over, prices don't have to go down, but you get the political change happens as well. Their last bit, a good big high for commodities was in 88, 89, and then the Berlin Wall came down. That was not accidental. That's the way it works. So, um, so we have an end of the boom. The, the demands from Beijing for continued lolly coming in for all of their corrupt ways are going to continue. But then if you've got sobriety returning to the party in southern China, belt tightening and people getting concerned, then they, then they expect the same sobriety amongst their political masters. So I think the end result is going to be a reverse takeover. Hong Kong and Taiwan are going to end up taking over Beijing. But it's interesting, rather than capitalism spread, uh, rather than communism spread south, capitalism has spread north. That would be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Bob Hoy, it's been a real pleasure talking yeah. to you. And uh, as we close, why don't you uh, give out uh, your website address and uh, let people know? Yeah, how they we, can we've get got. Uh, uh, you can look at it. It's institutionaladvisors.com, or actually, the easy way in is just to Google my name, Bob Hoy, B-O-B-H-O-Y-E, and there's it just appears in the Google. I don't and know how do it does you, it. Do you have a newsletter or something like that? Yeah, we publish every Thursday. About a five-page piece uh, written as an overview for, ideally with the uh, asset allocation in mind, the guy, uh, you know, the guy that's overrunning the shop. Um, 
where to be in bonds or whether to be in commodities or whether to be in stocks, and it covers those items fairly well. And then, then is it free? No. Um, we have a price level for high net worth accounts, and uh, we get uh, a nice figure from uh, institutions, eh, some at 10000 some at 20000 a year. That's U.S. dollars. And then we also have a, a Monday piece goes out that's strictly the bond market. And then our chart stuff, which is opportunistic. It goes out when we see opportunities. So there's a, there's a way of, of uh, a number of different subscribers enjoy it. I, can, I can't believe where you know, we get subscribers from. And they just come out of the network all over the, you know, Chile. Switzerland, uh, New Zealand, they come from everywhere. It's the same with this show. We get emails mm -hmm. from everywhere. That's fantastic. Most, you know, that's yeah. the beauty of the internet. Well, I'm so glad that you got in touch with me and we were able to get together here. It was a real pleasure. Yeah. Bob, thank hey, you very hey. much. We're shaking hands, for those of you that... <laughs> <laughs> shaking hands on the radio. It doesn't yeah. really work, but there we go. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com Capital Gold described themselves as Mexico's next gold producer. Their El Chanate mine in Mexico is at a very late stage of development. In fact, it's already in production and their first pour is imminent. Talking to me now is Jeff Pritchard, the vice president of IR and uh, one of the board of directors. Jeff, welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. Why don't we start by you telling us a bit about Capital well, Dominic, uh, Capital Gold has been in business uh, for about uh, six years now with the El Chinante project. We actually acquired this from Anglo Gold at the end of 2001, and we did the early stage development work on it, uh, basically just taking Anglo's data and confirming what we already received from them. What we did was put about 58 confirmation holes to augment their 199 holes. And really what happened at that point was we knew we had a project. We knew it was going to be economical at gold prices above $350. And slowly but surely we got people interested. Uh, we raised the required equity to build it. The uh, project itself has a capex of about $18 million. Uh, we raised $6 million uh, for the, our equity contribution to the project. And Standard Bank uh, loaned us uh, in a project financing twelve and a half million in order to complete the project. So at this point, we closed the loan with Standard Bank uh, middle of August of 2006. Uh, that's when we in earnest started making our cash contributions to the project, ordering the major items. We uh, started uh, drawing the bank money in October, and now as of uh, maybe the middle of March, we started stacking ore on the pads, and in, you know we're anticipating probably by the end of next week, cyanide solution will start going, and our first gold pour more than likely will be in the early part of July. If you want to see that all being stacked, I recommend you go to the Capital Gold Corporation website and uh, there's an excellent video up there where you can see uh, the mine in action. So the first week of July, did you say, for that first gold pour? 
Yeah, early July, we're still trying to pinpoint dates. You know, we feel pretty confident that the leaching process should start by the middle of next week. And then, although leaching is somewhat of an inexact science, we believe approximately 30 days thereafter, uh, we should be getting our first gold out of Shinate. That's excellent. You must be really excited. It is to see a project go from this point and, and the development. When we did acquire this from Anglo, uh, I hate to remind everybody, but gold was 262 an ounce. Uh, and right now our cash costs are about 260 an ounce. So we knew it wasn't going to be very economical then, but now as things have developed, uh, those cash costs looks pretty good to us right now. And, you know, with the gold price hovering around 650 US, uh, you know, we feel pretty confident that we'll have created pretty good cash flow from Shinante. 260 an ounce. That's pretty good. Yeah, it is. We, we've, we've heard that the industry average right now is somewhere around $320 an ounce. So we're quite happy with what our production costs are going to be. Now, as well as your first pour being imminent, you, you also uh, describe yourself as an exploration company. Are you exploring within the uh, El Chinate Gold property or are you exploring elsewhere? Well, what happened, Dominic, was back in February, there were some warrants that were due from our initial financing that all came in because the, the warrants were certainly in the money and we got an additional $5 million into the Treasury. We felt at this point, since we hadn't really done any true exploration work on our own properties, this was the time to look to see how much further the deposit ran to the east and west. Uh, we've just really not done any work besides conf confirming Anglo's work. So what happened was in February we instituted a 72-hole program uh, we did about 8,200 meters worth of drilling. It completed in middle of April. We we're just about to get the final drill holes in for our assays. So then what will happen is we turn all that over to a third party to, uh, you know, reevaluate our proven gold reserve. Uh, for the SEC in the U.S., we'll update our proven and probable numbers. We'll issue a new 43-101 for uh, the TSX and our Canadian regulators. And probably after that, also develop a new mine plan because we really don't know how far uh, the Shinante deposit runs, both east and west. It's open. It is structurally controlled to the north, so we don't, we don't really have much exploration area there. But, you know, early indications on the drill program, it, we feel very encouraged that the size of this deposit is going to increase. Right now, our proven and probable reserve is 490,000 ounces of gold, and that's, again, based on the old drilling and based on a 450 gold price. So we figured with these new holes, the new update, uh, and being able to probably use a 525 gold price in the estimations, uh, we're pretty confident that we'll see an increase in our proven and probable reserve. So what we're looking at here is uh, a gold pour coinciding with some rather exciting or some potentially exciting drill results. Exactly. And that, that's really been our plan. Uh, you know, we've always stayed focused on developing Shenante because we've looked at it as our company maker. Uh, we now know that, you know, some of the things that analysts are always looking for with junior mining companies, what's the blue sky exploration potential on your own property? 
and where are you going next? How do you how do you make the numbers bigger? Uh, you know, we've heard from the analysts; they have all those magic numbers. They like to see a hundred thousand ounces of production. They like to see a million ounces in your total reserve. And we know this will help us get closer to those numbers. But at the same time, we're also looking at other projects in northern Sonora, Mexico. There are other things that out <coughs> excuse me out there that you know have been looked at by other companies at other times. And just like Shinante, something that was maybe not economical at lower gold prices, certainly bears looking at again uh, in this environment. And in the sense that we've been able to take a property uh, and put this project into production really in, in about 10 months and do it on budget, we've actually made some improvements. So we put a better laboratory in at Chinante so we can actually do our own assays to do some regional reconnaissance work. So if somebody comes to us with a property of interest or some samples that we'd like to look at, we can do our own evaluations very quickly, not have to wait for an assay lab to get back to us, and make quick decisions on other properties to see if we have interest. And it's part of our regional strategy to grow the company in Mexico. It's too early to say what, your, what the mine life is going to be, isn't it? Well, right now, I mean, we have to say what it is, and that's about six and a half years, you know, producing at about a rate of 50,000 ounces a year. Probably be looking at somewhere around 25 for 2007. But the full year 2008, that's the schedule based on the current mine plan. But as I said, once we do update the mine plan with hopefully new higher reserve calculations, we will probably, A, increase our production rate, and B, increase the mine life at the same time. Mm -hmm. What's your market cap? Right now, we're running at approximately $65 million, uh, somewhere in that general neighborhood. We trade uh, right now about $0.40 cents in the U.S. and $0.42.5 cents on the TSX, and I think those numbers are almost directly related to the exchange rate between the two countries right now. And so how many shares are outstanding, and what about warrants There's and options? There's 166 million shares outstanding. There aren't many additional options and warrants. There's uh, warrants outstanding to Standard Bank that were part of the financing. Uh, most of the other warrants that are out there have already been uh, exercised. And uh, who, who are the major shareholders? Uh, RAB Capital has been a major shareholder. I don't know exactly their position right now. I know they did sell some stock. Uh, SPGP is a fund out of Paris that's been a big supporter. Uh, we have the Vanek Gold Fund, uh, the Caisse de Depot from Quebec, and also the AGF Fund out of Toronto. And as as a management team, we own just over 10% as well. And the, the, the major institutions own uh, what percentage of the company? Uh, about 35%. So about 50% is potentially tradable, you know, retail. Correct. And uh, your year high was, you're, you're trading at 40 now. What, what, what was your year high and year low? Well, I think we actually crept up uh, 47 cents. It was our high and our low was probably 37 cents. And I think there's just right now an anticipation that people want to see that we actually make it into production. And I think once that happens and then we can follow it up with uh, our report on our reserves, uh, I think th those two events should put us in a different light and, and change our valuation from that of an exploration development company to that of actually a producing gold company. I have to say that's a, that's a pretty narrow range. And, and uh, when a stock's trading in a narrow range like that and uh, you know it's nicely consolidating and then you've got these two potentially bullish 
factors unfolding over the summer, it, it's looking quite good for you. Yeah, we're we're actually quite excited. You know, it's been a long road, and uh, you know, the, we we don't see much volatility in the stock. About a year ago at this time, I think we were trading at thirty-two cents. So it's been a pretty steady climb over the past, you know, twelve months certainly. Uh, and you know, there was a lot of consolidating at thirty-two cents, and again at forty, and some more at forty-five, and again back down at forty. But you know, I think overall, uh, we have a pretty solid base where we are right now. Obviously, all of our listeners will be aware of the um, comparative security of mining in Mexico. The uh, infrastructure around the mines looks pretty good, judging by the video. Is that is that right? Yes, we're only about 20 miles outside of a major population area, and uh, it's uh, we're, our access is directly off a main highway. So we're only eight kilometers off that main highway. And we have power off the national power grid. We have our own well. So from an infrastructure standpoint, we're in great shape. Uh, because we're near population centers, we have a good uh, experienced workforce to go with uh, in terms of mining and also in terms of some of the accounting expertise that we found. Uh, a lot of the people have worked in mines in other places a little more remote, and they're actually happy to work for us, but they can actually go home at night and not live in a mining camp. So from, from those standpoints, we found it pretty fortuitous for where our location is. And one of the other things about Mexico, we've uh, done a couple of events with the new Minister of Mining for Mexico with the new administration. And they actually like our video, too. They think it's a good promotion of mining in Mexico. Uh, so we do have good relations with the government. And more importantly, they have reported that they anticipate that mining investment in Mexico for 2007 is going to be somewhere around $3.5 billion U.S. And, you know, from a standpoint of, you know, security and standpoint of stability of the government, uh, they're looking to promote mining in every way possible because they want to see that investment increase. So we don't feel that there's any risk of some of these windfall profits taxes that have gone to effect in other countries or, you know, uh, them taking and nationalizing mines. They're, they're looking at, at Mexico's burgeoning mining industry as a, certainly a new profit center for the government, and they're doing everything they can to promote that. And, of course, with NAFTA and uh, some of the other things that are in effect between the Mexicans and the government in the United States, we're very comfortable where we are from stability standpoint. Let me ask you uh, another question about your, your reserve and your resource. Yes. Do you have any other metals there? No, this is purely a gold play. There's a little bit of silver, but in our processing, we don't recover the silver, and it's not really that significant. And everything else, it, it's a, just a very clean ore, so it makes it a very simple process for us. Our chief operating officer, John Brownlee, always comments, he says, if you were writing an elementary textbook for heap leaching, you would take our project and use it as the prime example. <laughs> it's, it's not the sexiest project in the world, but it's simple. And in this case, simple is good. And um, just uh, for our investors' sake, will you just briefly outline who the main personnel in, in Capital Gold are? Well, sure. We have uh, John Brownlee's our chief operating officer. He's been the man responsible behind the actual uh, construction and operation of the project. He came to us. Uh, his his last big project was Newmont. Uh, he worked for the Newmont Zarafshan joint venture in Uzbekistan, and that was a, a 
coordinated project between the Uzbek government and Newmont Mining, where they produced about 440,000 ounces a year of gold in a heat bleach operation. Uh, and we were fortunate to get John. He was actually working as a consultant for SRK, and they were working on our engineering contract for Shenante, and we were still looking for the right chief operating officer, and we approached John, and he kind of liked us as a group. He liked the project and decided it was time for him to get back and put his mining hat on again. So he was uh, quite happy to join us, and he's done a terrific job. Uh, Chris Chipman is our chief financial officer. He's a younger guy, but he's certainly well-versed in all the new Sarbanes-Oxley regulations in the United States and does everything to do to keep our reporting clean and transparent. Uh, our exploration head is a fellow by the name of Roger Newell, who also comes from a background of Newmont and Goldfields, and he has his uh, Ph.D. from Stanford University, so he's the, the real educated guy in the group. Uh, and th those are really the key people in terms of the development of the project and how we run the company. Excellent. Well, Jeff, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And um, I have to say your company ticks a lot of boxes. Um, I know Greg McCoach is uh, one of the leading newsletter writers who's... Uh, newsletter is called the mining speculator you're one of his top picks every time i hear him interviewed he always uh, uh, picks out cap tips capital gold um so as we close uh, jeff why don't you uh, give out your website address uh, and uh, your ticker symbol sure uh the website is simple it's www.capitalgoldcorp.com uh, our ticker symbols in the u.s uh, on the bulletin board were listed as cgld and in Toronto, on the TSX, we're listed as CGC. And uh, one of the things we didn't mention, and uh, certainly we'd like to address this to potential investors, is that we know eventually the bulletin board's not the place for this company, and we are you know, looking at uh, a dual listing with the TSX and the American Stock Exchange at some point. It probably won't be till 2008, but it's certainly in our future, future plans. And uh, I'll point out to listeners, uh, don't go to Capital Gold because you'll end up listening to classic hits of the 1970s. Go to CapitalGoldCorp.com. Jeff, right. and it, it's actually funny, Dominic. That's the reason why we are CapitalGoldCorp.com because they already have it. <laughs> Jeff Richard, thank you very much. Thank you, Dominic. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Michael Hampton has been moving house this week and as a consequence his broadband is not yet switched on so he's gone downstairs to his local community centre to do this interview. Thank you for your commitment to the cause, Michael. Yeah, well, Dominic, it's good to speak to you. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow to go back to London, so um, this is my last uh, interview for a while from Hong Kong, and uh, I get a chance to do it here next to the waterfall with uh, a few uh, screaming kids in the background, and uh, maybe give you all a bit of atmosphere if you hear the odd word of Cantonese of uh, what it's <laughs> like to live in Hong Kong. Well, if they interrupt, swap them. <laughs> yeah, if I shout at them, they won't understand what I'm saying. I gather you haven't really had a chance to look at the markets with your broadband uh, not being on, but from what you've seen, that's quite a move in the bond market. Exactly, and I, I'm going to make a few comments here, which I'll probably regret later, but uh, 
anyway, uh, I'll fire away, and uh, perhaps if, if, if I've got it badly wrong, I'll look at my charts, I can correct the, uh, the uh, misinterpretations next, uh, next time. But uh, what I would like to say is it really looks to me like this bond, uh, move in the bond market, which we anticipated uh, some interviews before, and we talked about rates going as high as 5 to 5.2%, and we saw that rather quickly. I think this is a very important move. Uh, it's being seen that way uh, on some of the uh, channels, Bloomberg, for example, and because uh, I do still get Bloomberg here. Um, and uh, I do think it's quite an important move. And uh, what, what, uh, what I think it's telling us is something really important, and I'm going to stick my neck out and say this. Uh, I think it shows us that the Chinese are now running the casino. Uh, the Fed is no longer in, in, in charge. And uh, it's really the Chinese now who are in charge. And uh, that's going to have some very important consequences for, uh, for the markets and for the U.S. dollar. And uh, I'm going to describe in a minute a little scenario that I've been talking about on GEI, uh, which is uh, perhaps a bit speculative, uh, but it's worth thinking about as, as we move forward from here. But, I mean, obviously what's happened is we've seen this big jump in, in bond yields, and the long-term rate has moved up rather fast from 4.9% at our last interview to, I think, about 5 and a quarter today. Uh, that is a big move. It's hit the markets, uh, the equity markets a bit. I think there's more downside in the equity markets to come if the rates stay here, because at these rates, a lot of these LBO and uh, takeover deals just don't make sense anymore. And I think that's going to slow the uh, one of the main forces that's been pushing up the equity markets, and that's uh, buying uh, mergers and takeover activity. I think we're going to see that slowing down. And we may even see some of these deals getting into trouble. So this could be a very important turning point here. Um, you know, and even, even if it, it is the turning point, it may not happen straight away. I think it's very likely we'll get a retracement back towards 5%. And people may breathe a sigh of relief if and when we see that and uh, think that uh, all is right with the world. But I don't think all is right. Um, now I want to talk about the Chinese and a little bit about the gold market. Um, what, what's been happening now um, is uh, the last few auctions, including one yesterday, um, the Chinese didn't show up. They, they didn't show up to bid. So the, the, uh, the bond market found a level which uh, uh, you know, reflected no buying from the Chinese. And this is something we were anticipating and talking about last time, and it seems to really be happening. And other central banks seem to have cooled down on their buying of U.S. bonds as well. So what, what, what's happening here is I think the Chinese are letting, uh, you know, they're getting pressure now from the U.S. Congress, and there's talk about um, trade tariffs and so forth. And I think they're maybe giving the U.S. a chance to ponder whether, whether uh, this is something they should really be doing. Um, and, you know, so we've seen this big jump in bond yields, and we've seen the beginning of, uh, of a correction in, in the equity markets. Now, I, I have a little uh, scenario I'd like to mention, which I've talked about in GEI. If you were the Chinese and you had a lot of dollars, too many dollars, and you wanted to move, um, move into uh, other assets, what would you do? Well, you'd do exactly what the Chinese are doing now. You'd let the bond market drop. You'd let yields go up. Um, and by the way, that's helping to support the dollar right now. And you'd realize that that's going to drive down equity prices. 
And then when equity prices have fallen far enough, you might take your dollars uh, that you still have and invest those dollars in equity. That's particularly in equities related to commodity prices and other things that uh, will benefit from a weak dollar. So this could be part of a three-step scenario where, number one, uh, the Chinese step aside from the bond market, uh, higher bond yields push up, uh, sorry, push up rates, obviously, uh, and down, push down equity prices. And then once equity prices are far enough, and I think we're far from this, um, the Ch Chinese will then move their dollars into the U.S. equity market um, and looking for resource-type shares. And then you'll see a movement upwards in, in energy and metals shares, I reckon, perhaps in, particularly in gold mining shares. And then at some later stage, the Chinese then can sell those shares um, for other, other currencies or simply hold on to them as a hedge against a weaker dollar. Are they that clever? Oh, definitely. <laughs> the only ones that aren't that clever seem to be the uh, people in Washington who are running the U.S. Uh, Although I, I'm sure Hank Paulson knows what's going on and, uh, and you know, is, is, is uh, you know, aware of the risks of this. Hank Paulson was in, with, with uh, his colleagues, was in, it was in China, um, what was it, um, some months ago. And this latest round of discussions actually happened in Washington. And uh, Madam Wu, who was the head of the delegation from China, uh, actually addressed Congress to give Congress a chance to care how strong will the lady is, but um, they didn't seem to agree on much of anything. Um, and the, the result is that, um, you know, the, the, the Chinese have stopped buying U.S. bonds. So I don't think Paulson wants that, but it is going to have some interesting impact in the market. But this is uh, short-term bearish for all uh, stocks, not just, uh, but especially even commodity-related stocks. Yeah, definitely it is, and you know it may it may it may stop there. I mean, that the, the, my three three step scenario may not play out. We may just see a two step scenario. We have rising bond yields and and falling equity prices, and you know then it may hit a level where the Fed eventually has to lower short term rates. But what's going on here is the Fed controls short term rates, and the Chinese are showing that they really control long term rates. Um, so we have a very interesting tug of war going on right now between the power of the Fed, which is the waning power of the world, and the rising power of the Chinese, which are now controlling the bond market in the U.S. dollars and probably the bond markets globally. And that kind of tug of war is not going to be good for the uh, equity markets. Meantime, uh, inflation is rising globally. Um, CPI has been announced to have doubled in the last year in China. It's almost 4% now, and that's being driven by about an 8% rise in food prices in China. And as I think Jim Rogers is saying now, food prices uh, are in a great bull market now and look to go a lot higher. And that's going to keep the pressure, upward pressure on inflation. So a lot of things we've been talking about for some time seem to be coming to play. And how's this going to affect the, the price of gold? Well, okay, now this is, <laughs> I wish we could have this discussion in about uh, an hour or two, but I don't think that's going to be convenient. Um, so I'll stick my neck out right now. Um, well, I, I think gold is behaving reasonably well. I mean, it's come down, but uh, it's not coming down, and gold shares aren't coming down as much as, as, uh, 
as they normally would in this time of falling uh, stock prices. So I'm actually reasonably encouraged by the gold price. And I put some orders in last night before the market closed and when I went to bed um, and uh, was a little bit surprised to see that almost all of them filled. And so I bought uh, quite a large number of call options on GDX, which is the uh, gold share index, and also on GFI, which is gold fields, uh, which is a big South African. And I'm buying here, I'm buying uh, July and... Uh, and uh, October calls, uh, so I'm giving myself a bit of time to see how this plays out. I'm also buying in-the-money options. I tend to prefer those. So I bought quite a large number of those last night, but uh, uh, I've been waiting for a while to get to a point where I can buy with some amount of aggressiveness, and we've come into that window last yesterday. And I'm going to do some more work and see if I'm going to add to these positions, um, you know, tonight and uh, Friday night and next week. But I think there's a reasonable chance that we've come into a very interesting buy window here for the gold stocks and perhaps for gold itself. Yes, I think we last time talked about 640 as a target for gold. Uh, it looks like we might touch that level. What did we close at? 647 last night? Mm -hmm. uh, so we're awfully close to that. And I wouldn't even mind seeing the gold price get down to the 630s. Um, that to me would still represent the, you know, the, a nice window to buy. I uh, can't rule out it falling further, but you know, I think we're in a window now where, if you have some cash on the sidelines, and I think a lot of people uh, who listen to this program probably do, um, you know, this is a good time to start putting that money to work. Frank Barbera recently wrote out to his subscribers and uh, the contents of this letter have been doing the rounds on the internet. He is very bearish on gold. His indicators su that uh, suggest a triple top just below 700 and uh, now a possible move back to 510. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, um, anything's possible. Um, so I, I can't say he's wrong. I mean, that sounds pretty alarming. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, and this is what I really need to study, is how, how, what kind of volume is coming into the market. I looked at the market quickly, and I didn't see huge volume in, uh, in the gold shares, huge selling volume. Uh, it looked, it looked uh, lighter than the last low, which is around the same level. So I don't really see why it should fall sharply from here. I also think that uh, people started selling their gold shares well before they were selling general equities. There was a lot of talk about an April-May top in gold in gold shares. And I think people did a lot of their selling. There is a lot of cash on the sidelines. And I think what's what's going to be really interesting here and may actually determine, you know, whether this is a level or not is, you know, who, who might actually start buying gold and gold shares? I mean, that comes back to the Chinese money once again. If, if they start taking those dollars that they've got, the dollars that are not going into bonds, and they start buying resource shares, taking over resource companies. And actually, Chalco announced a uh, deal this week. Uh, was it last week? I think it was announced on Monday, uh, announced over the weekend, where Chalco, which is the Chinese aluminum company, is taking over Peru Copper. So, I mean, that's a sign to me that uh, the scenario of the Chinese putting their uh, dollars to work in resource stocks is, in fact, exactly what we're going to see. And if that starts happening and starts happening soon, 
I can't believe these gold shares are going to slip much further from here. Well, that's very interesting. And uh, what can I say, Michael? It's been a pleasure hearing your um, perspective once again. And uh, we'll see you in London next week. Well, I look forward to that. And uh, maybe we can do the next interview face to face. <laughs> we'll do that. I can't remember what you look like. <laughs> Good face for radio. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Michael Hampton, as we close, why don't you give out the website address once again? Sure, Dominic. Uh, it's www.globaledgeinvestors.com. Mike, thanks very much. Sure. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisby for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.